This is Beyond the Ridge, the Vimy Foundation's conversational series in partnership with the National Film Board of Canada and supported by Veterans Affairs Canada. My name is Caitlin Bailey, the Vimy Foundation's Executive Director, and together we will be looking today at veterans and commemorations. Beyond the Ridge pairs Vimy Foundation program alumni with academic experts to discuss topics linked to the First World War from a contemporary perspective. This episode was originally broadcast as a webinar and features Dr. Tim Cook in conversation with Vimy Foundation program alumnus Prasanna Iyengar. Dr. Tim Cook is the Acting Director of Research at the Canadian War Museum and the author of 13 books with his newest, The Fight for History, 75 Years of Forgetting, Remembering and Remaking Canada's Second World War, published in September 2020. He is also a member of the Royal Society of Canada and the Order of Canada. Prasanna Iyengar is a 2010 Vimy Prize alumnus. He has since participated in numerous Vimy Foundation events and educational programs. Prasanna works as a software developer and holds a Bachelor of Computer Science from the University of New Brunswick. The Beaverbrook Vimy Prize takes Canadian, British, and French students on an educational journey across the historic battlefields of the First and Second World Wars in Belgium and France. The first question for you, that I have for you, Dr. Cook, is why, in general, do societies commemorate events like the First World War? Well, I think Canada's Great War was a, a traumatic event in our history. Uh, 50 years after Confederation, it was the most uh, significant event up to that point. We had 620,000 Canadians who served from a country of 8 million. We fought on the Western Front. The Canadian Corps, commanded by a Canadian from June of 1917, Sir Arthur Currie, was really a national symbol. This was Canada stepping out onto the world stage, uh, contributing, standing shoulder to shoulder with our allies, fighting at places like Second Deep, the Somme, Vimy, Hill 70, Passchendaele, and the 100 Days Campaign. But we paid a terrible price, 66,000 Canadians killed. And I think the trauma of those deaths, along with how the war brought us together like never before, but also divided us. And if we think of the conscription crisis as one of the most divisive events in our shared history, this is a war that changed us. And coming out of the war, Canadians, after victory on November 11th, 1918, struggled, I think, to make meaning of the war. Uh, and one of the ways they did that was to build memorials to the fallen. And, and we know that they are across this country. There are thousands of them in every city, every town, every village. I imagine wherever you are, those who are the hundred people or so who are here with us today, there is a memorial to the Great War where you grew up and where you are now. So just uh, an astonishing change to our memorial landscape. If we think also of provincial memorials, if we think of national memorials and overseas memorial like Beaumont Hamel or Vimy. And so one way to make meaning of the war, I think, was to create these stone memorials, but also symbolic acts of remembrance. Think of Armistice Day, known as Remembrance Day in 1931. Think of the, the power of the poppy. Think of John McRae's poem, which uh, initially is a martial poem, and then in the 20s becomes a poem about the need to remember. And so we see coming out of the Great War this creative impulse, and I think this need to 
understand the service and the sacrifice and the many changes that occurred to our country as a result of the Great War? I think there's a few interesting points there that I kind of want to draw back. One of my first observations, maybe, and you can perhaps expand on this, is that like when you look at the different memorials across this country, whether it be in Sussex, New Brunswick, or Fredericton, where I'm located today, or Vancouver, they all have a very similar theme, but then they also have very styles and architectural features. And then we have buildings that are used as memorials, such as uh, Memorial Hall at the University of New Brunswick. I know the University of Toronto has a tower that's dedicated. I know that those patterns also exist in the United Kingdom. In terms of these memorials, how did they come about? Was it a concentrated effort that was centralized and kind of funding given and people went about it? Or was it really grassroots and each of these communities took it upon themselves to do that? Yeah, it's a good question. And and for the most part, it was grassroots. It was in the communities. And after the war, these communities, community leaders and veterans and grieving parents and, and large segments of the society came together to raise money to build memorials. And I think if you've traveled this country, as I was mentioning before, you will find a memorial, and many of them often, in every, every community. And they're not just the stone memorials, although they come in every shape and size, some with sculptured figures on top, uh, soldiers, often they are obelisks. They are usually and almost always are cenotaphs insofar as that there is no body there. We left our Canadian soldiers overseas for the most part in the Commonwealth War Grave Cemeteries as they're known today. And those are very powerful places to visit. And I think that they continue to draw back Canadians. But I think because we left, uh, left our soldiers overseas, uh, our fallen soldiers, that there was this need to create something in our communities. And, and one of the things I've argued in some of my books is even though we often think of the Great War as this great national event and even the Canadian Corps as a formation 100,000 strong, It, of course, was formed by individual Canadians, ordinary men pulled from across this country, English Canadians, French Canadians, new Canadians, indigenous Canadians, Canadians from from every region, every class, almost every religion. And so that is why after the war was those same communities where the survivors returned to, the veterans, those uh, healthy in body and those who were suffering from physical wounds, and I think we have a greater sense now of the mental wounds as well, coming together to create a place to remember, to commemorate, and to bear witness. And that's a fair point, and I think I've noticed that in just in terms of how it's really not that you only see, like there's the National War Memorial in Ottawa, of course, but it's it's a very powerful place to visit. But I, I think I've been to Remembrance Day ceremonies across this country as well, and you can, it doesn't really matter how big the, the community is. You get that same sense of common understanding and common loss, I guess, that we're trying to commemorate. Yeah. Um, no, I, I just want to add something there, Prasanna. Of course, you're exactly mm-hmm. right. There are national monuments. Uh, think of the Peace Tower in Ottawa with Parliament burning down in 1916 and then the tower erected and unveiled in 1927. We have our national memorial in downtown Ottawa, the competition in 1925. Vernon March, who was the architect and his siblings after he died, I believe in 1930, carried on with that memorial unveiled in May of 1939. And then most importantly, if we're, if we're here with the Vimy Foundation, to talk about Beaumont Hamel overseas, and of course the Vimy Memorial 
uh, unveiled in 1936, an astonishing event where more than 6,000 Canadians who called themselves pilgrims in a very sacred way, uh, most of them veterans with their loved ones, crossed the Atlantic in one of the largest movements of civilians in our history to converge on that ridge with Walter Allward's uh, powerful memorial. And as some of you know, I wrote a book on this, Vimy, the Battle and the Legend. And I was there in 2017 when 25,000 Canadians returned to the ridge, an absolutely astonishing and, and epic event to be a part of. And I was very lucky to be a historical commentator with CBC at the time. And Prasanna, I know you've been there. Uh, one feels the weight of history. It's a place where I have always said, I, I really hope every Canadian has a chance to go to. It's a place of pride. It's a place of sorrow. Uh, one feels the ghosts of Vimy there. And um, I think those who go leave changed. Oh, for sure. It's, it's a very, very striking monument. And during our program, we actually, unlike you drive up to the monument, you follow the parking lot, you follow the roads, you you start on the ridge. And so you, you get a sense, you know, it, it very much overlooks a lot of very large landscape that you're overlooking. But as part of the program, we actually walked from further down. And then I remember we just walked up the ridge itself. And it's, it's a very deceiving hill. Like you don't, you don't get the sense of scale in the same way that you do unless you try to walk that up. And like, it looks like a normal, you know, small gradient. But by the time you're done, you're, it, it, it's exhausting. And to think that, you know, during the Battle of Vimy Ridge, um, yeah. this is what they I've led. And... I've led battlefield tours there, Prasanna. And, mm -hmm. and we do that. We walk up and it doesn't feel like much at first. That gradual climb, of course, you're moving up the the divisional boundary between the third and the fourth division, mm -hmm. moving up towards Hill 145, where uh, an elite German Prussians were dug in there on the 9th of April, 1917, when the Canadian soldiers, four divisions strong, stormed up the ridge. But when you think about it, 3,600 dead in the four-day battle, most of them on that first day, every step you take, a hundred years later, every step you take, if you reflect back to what the Canadians were doing on that cold day on the 9th of April, there would have been a body there. You would have been stepping mm -hmm. over the bodies of your comrades. And it is, it is incredibly powerful to make that trip, to walk the ridge, to study the terrain, to look out over the Douai Plain, to see the sculptured figures from Walter Allward on the memorial, the twin spires, the 11,285 names of fallen Canadians with no known graves in France, and then to return, I think, to the museum there, which the Vimy Foundation played a key role in having built. It is a place that one never forgets. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I, I mean, I had the fortune of doing it during good weather, but you know, you're not going to have a very clear day when you're fighting during a battle. And I all of these uh, aspects of how challenging it was for all these Canadians and the 3,600 who died, which is a very significant number even today, but we're talking about when Canada's population was maybe, well, less than a third of what it is today. And it's very, very striking for sure. You mentioned that all the, the graves overseas are in the Commonwealth format and the Commonwealth grave format. And at the same time, we talk about Vimy being the birthplace of Canada as its own nation. 
And I know it's not just Canada that has Commonwealth graves, and I've also had the privilege of seeing Commonwealth graves across the world. So I've seen one cemetery in India, for example, that looks pretty much the same as the one you'd see in France. And I know the Legion has adopted a similar, at least locally in Fredericton, the, the gravestones that they use are similar in format. Was there a lot of deliberation in terms of how these gravestones were done, or was it just that it was such a large global effort that they chose to follow the same pattern as everyone else? No, there was a deliberate series of policies and discussions of which Canada and Australia and New Zealand were all involved in dealing with the British and the Imperials to create uniform uh, cemeteries. Many of the, the watchers here will have visited them, the cross of sacrifice that is there, the headstones that are uniform. These are very powerful places. And, uh, and I first went to the Western Front when I was 17 years old. It had an, a tremendous effect on me. Uh, where I work at the Canadian War Museum, we have a, almost everyone has been there. We have talked about this incredibly moving experience to walk those silent cities, as, as I called them in one of my books, to see the Canadians who lay there together forever to look at their names, to, to look at the age. I've found 17-year-olds. I've found 16-year-olds. I've found 45-year-olds. That is Canada. That is the Canada of the early 20th century. And as I said before, they are English Canadians and French Canadians and Russian Canadians and Ukrainian Canadians and Jewish Canadians and African, Canadian, African Canadians uh, and Indigenous Canadians all together lying there, having served king and country, having fought for the ideals that they believed in. And of course, more than 20,000 of them who have no known graves, who are captured on the Vimy Memorial or the Menin Gate. But always to me, it has been the epitaphs that have left me in tears, looking at those headstones, looking at the sayings at the bottom of the headstone that is protruding from the earth, thinking about those parents those grandparents, those widows, those children who tried to find the words to capture what their loved one meant. And they are among the most powerful words I have ever written or read in my 48 years. Yeah, for sure. They're very, very powerful. I remember, I think our one of our first days on the tour, we went to the site near where John McRae wrote uh, in Flanders Fields, and there's a cemetery there, and there's a 13-year-old boy. Like, and you know, I was 16 at the time, and I'm I'm thinking here, like this is this is how all-encompassing in terms of demographics, everyone felt the the urge to participate in the effort. Yeah, it, it's very very striking, and the epitaphs are in, indeed varied. And it's you go to the Vimy monument and you see all the names. You don't, you don't get a sense of how many names are actually written on that monument until you go close and you see how small that font is and how encompassing the monument is and like encompassing the names are on that monument. It's certainly very, very striking. On that note of monuments, I'm going to show you a few excerpts from the film the Field of Sacrifice, which was directed by Donald Britton and has been made available to us today by the National Film Board. It was shot in 1964, and I find that interesting in terms of timing because it's 20 years after the Second World War concluded. And I actually learned quite a bit from it. So for those of you who are interested, it's available online on the National Film Board's website called The Field of Sacrifice, and I learned a lot. So I'll show you just a few small clips, and Dr. Cook will get your thoughts on that a little bit in terms of what it represents, and maybe we can expand on some of the things we see in the two films. 
And in my eyes, I think it was both informative and commemorative, which is interesting. Sheep can graze on battlefields. Money can be made from battlefields. Men can be remembered by battlefields. That's a Donald Britton film. It's a tremendous film. And if you have an opportunity, do go to the NFB site and take a look at it. I've, I've always found it a very moving film for the footage, for the scenes that were selected, and those obviously left on the cutting room floor. Donald Britton also did Canada at War, which is about the only Second World War series that has been produced in this country in 1962. And I, I talk about it in my new book, The Fight for History, and how it was a significant offering, but sadly, one of the very few ones that we have in this country. And certainly we did for the Second World War. And as you said, Prasanna, it's an interesting time period in 1964, where for about 15 to 20 years, the, the First World War had been largely forgotten. The Second World War, that absolutely necessary war, had been fought. And then as, as the world moved beyond 1945, it moved into a new period of prosperity, certainly in the Western world. And we left behind the Great War, and it wasn't really rediscovered again until the 1960s. But in Canada, there has always been a, a bit of a different message. And in the early 1960s and mid-60s, we see the message of the First World War being the birth of the nation. That's where we get, in fact, the phrase, Vimy being the birth of the nation, which is, uh, uh, as I describe in my book on Vimy, which came from Lester B. Pearson and others. And, and it has been a powerful, resonating message, I think, about the transformative effects of the Great War on Canada. It's interesting. I, I think it's very interesting to look at it, you know, 20 years after the Second World War. And the two comments he's making is that sheep can break graze on battlefield. And you mentioned you had a story earlier, pre, prior to the session, Dr. Cook mentioned he had a story about sheep. So I'm very excited for that. Well, my sheep story is this, that uh, as some of you will know, I, I was the, the First World War historian at the Canadian War Museum, and I was involved in setting up the permanent galleries. And we did this, a small team from 2002 to 2005, when the museum opened in May 2005. And I'm, I'm very proud of that experience. If you're interested in knowing why I write my history books the way I do, and, and my desire to share these stories with Canadians, because I'm a public historian. Um, it's my work at the War Museum. It's my interactions with Canadians on a daily basis. It's my amazing colleagues who offer me great ways to think about how, how we can share our, our history with all Canadians. And I think the War Museum is a, a stunningly important uh, cultural center for Canada to know its military history. But my sheep story is uh, when we were designing the galleries, people would occasionally get a hold of my email and call me. And I had a woman who called me and said, Dr. Cook, what do you think of when you think of Vimy? And I said, well, I, I think of the memorial. And, and I think of the Canadians who are who are there, those 11,285. And she said, well, what else? I said, well, I think of the ridge. I think of the craters you still see to this day. And she said, yes, what else? And I, I had a few more uh, observations and she said, what else? And I said, well, I don't know. Uh, what do you think of Vimy? And she said, I think of the sheep. I think of the sheep of Vimy. And it's true because the sheep are there. And those of you who have walked Vimy, you know they're there. They're in the red zone, the danger zone. And she had a very good suggestion putting sheep on top of the Canadian War Museum to, to act uh, like they do at Vimy to cut the grass. And I think uh, it was an interesting observation of, 
of the power of Vimy, the power of the monument and the battle and the landscape or the warscape as I have called it. And now the museum and the memorial there and the ways that Vimy has resonated through our history in history books, the Vimy Foundation, it's on our $20 bill, it's in our passport. It's an important icon, symbol, and as I have said, a legend that is ours. This is our story and it's one that helps to distinguish us and, and the things we did together in a very hard way more than a hundred years ago. On the note of the sheep and like, you know, it's, it's a very, very striking visual. You get to a monument, it look, it's very somber. It's a, you know, a Canadian war site. And then you get there and then you just see all these sheep out there grazing. And I, I remember during the new prize, one of the things that really struck out to me, and I think maybe this is a bit of a difference in terms of commemoration in Canada versus in Europe where the battle, battles were actually fought is that they still have undetonated shells. They have a 30 year backlog of undetonated shells that they're trying to detonate in a safe manner. And you know, these just keep showing up because how high the water table was in a lot of these areas where they were dropping shells. And these are mostly from the first world war rather than the second world war. And again, I guess it's partially due to how likely a shell that you dropped was actually to detonate. I think those shells are incredible. And if you've walked the battlefields, you see the shells and you can almost put your hand in the dirt and pull up shrapnel balls and shell fragments. And some of these battlefields, the key cockpits of battle around Ypres on the Somme at Verdun in the Arras area where the major battles were fought back and mm -hmm. forth, not just for months, but for years, were saturated with uh, thousands upon thousands of shells per square meter. And it, it is quite astonishing to be driving down the laneways, and you, you often are in, on farmers' fields, if you seek to visit a small cemetery or a site that um, was important to the Canadian Corps or another fighting formation, and you see these unexploded ordnance at the end of the driveway, almost like garbage that's been left out for the demineurs to come by and to collect. And it's a it's a sober reminder, I think, of the legacy of war. And I, and I have sometimes talked about this as, as another, in another way, as a metaphor of war. This war mm -hmm. that continues to have a hold on our imagination. It's a war that continues to haunt us. And these shells that continue to work their way to the surface year after year after year are like the memories of the war that continue to work their way forward through our national museums, through our history mm -hmm. books, through our amazing high school teachers who, who teach their students through parents, um, through our family history. And I imagine many of the people who are on this call have a, a genealogical link to someone who served in the two world wars. And, and I wish I was with you now because this is something I love to hear. I love to hear these family stories. I love to hear these personal stories. And they remind us that of the 620,000 who may have served in the First World War and the 1.1 million who served in the Second World War, putting aside the 110,000 who were killed, and that in itself is a mm -hmm. staggering number, but putting aside them, there are millions and millions of Canadians in our country who have this strong link to the past, this shared history. And when people ask me at times, will we forget our history? Will we lose our history? One of the things I have explored in my books on Vimy and my new one, The Fight for History, there are times when we have lost our history, when we right. have turned our back on our mm -hmm. military history, when we have neglected to tell our story, 
but I have often found that it is the children and now the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of these so many Canadians who served who help keep the flame alive. That's a very poignant answer, and I think it, it ties down to one of the questions that I had, because when I was preparing for the event, one of the things that seems thematic, and I think your new book must be covering that to a great degree, like we talked about that cyclical nature of remembrance. In your experience, what has explained it in the past, and do you have any thoughts on like what contributes to that? Well, it is cyclical, and I think if you are over the age of 45 or 50, you'll remember Remembrance Day in the 60s and 70s and 80s when it was very poorly attended, very poorly attended at the national level and in communities. And my new book, The Fight for History, I wanted to know why that was. I wanted to know why and how we remembered the Second World War. And it has gone through cycles, and, and I talk about the many ways that we make memory and meaning out of war. We build memorials. And if we think of the thousands of memorials to the Great War, we didn't do the same in the Second World War. And I try to explore that. Why didn't we build a national memorial in Ottawa? Why did it take until 2003 to unveil and to create the Juno Beach Center? Why had we done such a poor job in telling our history while the Americans and the British and the French and the Germans and everyone else were talking about the Second World War and in fact using it in a way mm -hmm. to shape the very nature and contours of memory and identity in their country. And you can think of the Americans really playing for keeps here in, in the field of culture. Think of The Longest Day and Saving Private Ryan, where it's their story. Think right. of the way that the Russia uses the Great Patriotic War. Think of the way that the British talk about standing alone when despite having 500 million uh, supporting members in the dominions and the colonies, including India. Think about the ways that countries talk about war, in our case, Canada and Vimy. But I was wondering why we didn't do that for the Second World War for so long. And when we did, we often focused on defeat and disgrace and the strange way that Dieppe has had a held on our imagination in a way that six years in the Battle of the Atlantic and the incredible contributions of Canadians fighting in Normandy or Italy or clearing the Scheldt, perhaps the most important uh, land campaign during the Second World War, fought almost entirely by Canadians. Why those don't resonate? And so you're exactly right. We have gone through cycles of remembrance, of commemoration, of telling our stories. And the low point was really the early 1990s, I think with the Valor and the Horror film. And then it changed. And, and I think the key event was the 50th anniversary and the return of thousands of veterans overseas, our, our aged warriors, many in their mid 70s at that point, welcome back mm -hmm. as liberators. Right. I've been very lucky to speak to veterans my whole life. And I heard their stories and I've asked them the questions. And to me, this is one of my, my favorite things about my job at the War Museum too to meet veterans, to talk to them, not just of the Second World War and the, and the Great War, where I, I did, I, I'm old enough to have been able to talk to many of them, but our modern peacekeepers and members of the Canadian mm -hmm. forces and those who served in Afghanistan and, and all the difficult missions and campaigns and wars after 45. Right. And I think there is a cyclical nature and it's one that bears reflecting upon. I, I think if there is good news, I think we are paying more attention to our shared past, our history, and what our Canadian Force members have done and what they continue to do and, well, and how veterans have helped to build up this country. And in that, I think one of my questions, and I'm not asking you to necessarily you know, give away all the secrets in your book, but 
this Canada's reputation as a peacekeeping country make Canada in the 50s onward shy about talking about the military history? Or do you think it's very distinct? I know, for example, that Lester Pearson was a key contributor to the founding of the United Nations and all of these things that happened, right? So how much does that play a role? In it does. I, I'm very proud of our peacekeeping history. I think we all should be. We have been a force for good around the world. And uh, Pearson and the Suez Crisis, where he was able to intervene with the support of Norway, United States, and other nations, but actually suggest and have committed a peacekeeping force, uh, should be recognized in this country, as it was with Pearson himself with the Nobel Peace Prize in 1957. But the peacekeeping symbol has been a comfortable one for Canadians, and uh, comfortable insofar as we haven't had to think about war and conflict. And I think of the 20th century where we fought at least six wars, uh, the South African War, the Great War, mm -hmm. the Second World War, the Korean War, the Cold War, the Gulf War in 1990-91, the Kosovo bombing campaign, and of course our Afghanistan war, I think that's the right phrase as a post mission, mm -hmm. for more than 10 years. Think of the 19th century, how our country was shaped by war and conflict. Think of the 18th century, where our very destiny has been shaped. And think before that of indigenous warfare. So it's a part of our history and, and we do a disservice to our, our past, if you care about these things, as I do, to pretend we're something that we're not. And that isn't to suggest that we need only to talk about war, that would be absurd as well. And yet we should not forget our shared past. And, and one of the things we do at the War Museum is this is our mission and mandate. These are the stories that we tell, the way that war has shaped Canada and I'm very lucky to be the curator of a new exhibition at the War Museum that'll open in November called Forever Change, Stories of the Second World War. And it really explores the impact of the Second World War on Canadians, those fighting around the world, those contributing to the war effort at home, men and women, English Canadians, French Canadians, new Canadians, indigenous Canadians, Canadians from all classes. It'll be a powerful exhibition. And I hope you can join us at the War Museum, which has reopened again since early September, to uh, hear these stories and to uh, better understand our shared history. I'm just gonna show one other short clip from the film Fields of Sacrifice. Where men first felt poison gas. It's interesting because in the 60s, there's still someone dutifully grooming trees and it's very very well manicured and I guess very briefly if you wanted to just comment on well, that, the that's the brooding soldier um near Passchendaele but not there at the, that's at the battle right. of Saint-Julien or the second battle of Ypres as it's often called and of course that is the battle the first really trial by fire battle by the Canadians in April of 1915 where the Germans unleashed chlorine gas on the 22nd of April and where the Canadian division fought in a, in a really significant rearguard battle over four bloody days. And the Canadians made their reputation there. And those of you who have been to the War Museum know the massive Richard Jack painting that is in Gallery 2, the Fortal War Gallery. Uh, it captures, I think, the epic nature of that battle. Uh, that's, that's the battlefield where John McCrae wrote in Flanders Fields. And when there was the competition in 1919 and 1920 to create a number of overseas memorials of which Walter Allward's design for Vimy became first and that became the place to market, Clemshaw's brooding soldier, as we call that very powerful monument, was the second choice. And it was erected there and unveiled 
much earlier in 1923. And to me, I have been there. I imagine many participants have. It's, it's, a, it's a striking memorial, very rare. There's very few others like it. And I have always found it somber, um, evocative, and a dark place as well. And I think when we talk about memorials, we need to remember that they are often on sites of tremendous violence and grief and loss that they stand as markers to those things, but also in this case in particular, the incredible stand and fighting defense of the Canadians who faced not one but two gas attacks, one on the 22nd, the other on the 24th of April. And so it's a place like so many of these memorials with, with mixed emotions, but one that if you ever have a chance to go to the Western Front, you simply must go there along with Vimy and Beaumont Hamel uh, and to the Somme. When we went during the Vimy Prize, the, the annual ceremony for the Dieppe Raid, just in general, how the war memorials are far more visited, far more frequented. I mean, part of that can be just explained by population and just having those visual reminders in your day-to-day by uh, undetonated shells and so on. But is it, is it also, a, is there a cultural element there historically in terms of the commemoration of the First World War? and They, they are different know. because they, they span different decades and, and different wars. And, and I think the way we build memorials is often shaped by our current society. And I think if we think of the aftermath of, of the Great War and the search for meaning and to create a usable memory of that war, we turned very much to our memorials. We didn't do the same in the Second World War. Very much we focus on the veterans, if one thinks of the Veterans Charter as an incredible series of programs to propel the country forward, of of which I would argue that uh, was maybe the greatest contribution. As a result of not building the same Second World War memorials, and, you know, I've been to Dieppe, I have stood there, it's a very powerful place, and yet for decades there was nothing there to mark that the Canadians had ever fought there. And the same, and even more egregiously in my mind, at Juneau Beach, where we simply did not mark what we did. And I think it was a tremendous failure of foresight and knowledge by our government of various days not to build a memorial there to tell the world what we had done. Because Vimy is one of the most visited sites on the Western Front. When I wrote my book, a couple of years ago, 750,000 visitors a year. It's more now. And they come to hear the Canadian story. We did not do that for D-Day. Mm-hmm. And I think that by not doing that, we failed to tell our story. And I would argue today in the 21st century, we're living in a very contentious period where history is divisive, where history can be scary, where history can be weaponized. And again, this is a period where we should be brave and we should face the past. And I'm not ever calling for heroic chest bumping history, but nor do I want to diminish what we have done together in times of great strain and struggle. And Mm -hmm. so I think that we must continue to face our shared history because it grounds who we are. It tells us it tells us about who we are in the contemporary Canada, maybe where we might be going forward. I would like to thank our series partners, the National Film Board of Canada, for the short film clip from Fields of Sacrifice, Veterans Affairs Canada for the support of Beyond the Ridge, and finally, the Canadian War Museum.
the Canadian War Museum, opened in 2005, is Canada's National Museum of Military History and one of the world's most respected museums for the study and understanding of armed conflict. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and stay tuned because there are many more in the Vimy Foundation's Beyond the Ridge series. In the next and last episode of this series, we will be looking at the making of Return to Vimy, an NFB film directed by Denis McCready. Please join me again. Until next time, this is Beyond the Ridge. Beyond the Ridge is a Vimy Foundation podcast, produced in partnership with the National Film Board of Canada and supported by Veterans Affairs Canada. Building the future informed by the past, the Vimy Foundation works to preserve and promote Canada's ongoing legacy of leadership, as symbolized by the First World War victory at Vimy Ridge in April 1917, a milestone where Canada came of age and was recognized on the world stage.